This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Y'all, we had Jody Pico. So, longtime listeners know that we, Adam and I, interviewed Jody Pico many, many years ago. Um, it was actually live. Um, it was for her book, Small Great Things. We did it at the Cuyahoga County um, Public Library. Uh, they had this really fantastic amphitheater. We got to interview Jody. It was episode 64. Wow. <laughs> I just, that's like real-time reaction right there, folks. That's real-time reaction. I don't remember it being that long ago, but apparently it was. Episode 64, we interviewed Jody Pico. <laughs> uh, 2016. Yeah, that's a long time ago. So, it's been a while. So, when I say long-time listeners, I mean, I mean long-time listeners. Um, and anyway, Jody's back. Jody has a new book. Wish you were here. Uh, it's so good. I read it in like two days over my birthday weekend. Good stuff. And I was absolutely ex- so excited to have the opportunity to speak to Jody again. Um, she is, of course, the New York Times bestselling author of 25 books in including um, 19 Minutes, My Sister's Keeper, um, and love everything, love all the books, love all the Jodi Pico books. So excited to talk to her again. This book, I I feel like I need this disclaimer because I know that um, people are of two minds of this, which is totally fine. This is a COVID book. The book is set... During COVID, like it's set during the pandemic, it opens in March of 2020, the day New York City shut down. And and that plays a big role, um, that shutting down. And if you're not in a place where you're ready to read about COVID and like really read about COVID, don't read this book. Save it for later. That's okay if you're not ready for it. That's fine. Everyone has their own comfort level with, with reading about COVID you know, we talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic almost two years ago. Adam and I, you know, we took two very different approaches when it came to our book reading choices at the start of the pandemic. I'm someone who I I will lean into that sort of thing. Other people like Adam are not. So if you are of the not reading COVID books right now, set during COVID with COVID as a very big focus of the book, wish you were here might not be for you and that's okay but for everybody else I highly recommend it it was good um our website is professional book nerds at overdrive.com we are on twitter instagram and tiktok at pro book nerds and you can always email us at professional book nerds at overdrive.com um I think that's all I got for you we're coming up to um end of the year Again, get those reading challenges in, and um, I 
think I think that's all. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Jody Pico on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Jody, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So can you start by giving listeners a brief introduction to your new book, Wish You Were Here? Sure. Wish You Were Here is the story of Diana O'Toole. She is a young woman who's almost 30 who has her entire life planned out perfectly. And it is all going according to plan. She um, is an art specialist at Sotheby's and is about to get a big promotion. She is dating a surgical resident uh, at a hospital in New York City. And she just knows he's going to propose on their bucket list trip to the Galapagos, which they're taking the next day. But the book opens on March 13th, 2020, which is the day that New York City shut down because of the pandemic. And her boyfriend tells her, I'm not allowed to leave the hospital. They're not going to give me vacation time, but you should still go. And she uh, she does. She goes to the Galapagos, even though um, it is uh, completely out of her comfort zone and she doesn't speak the language. And when she gets there, the island is shutting down for what she thinks is two weeks. And uh, what that, of course, turns into is months. And she um, basically has to um, experience what it's like to be in paradise when the rest of the world is on fire, is a dumpster fire. Um, and learn a lot about you know what she wanted, what she thought she wanted, and whether those are the things that she still does want. Um, yeah, you mentioned she has to, you know, experience paradise while the rest of the world is on fire and she has no idea how bad it is because there's no Wi-Fi, no No cell service, uh, which is all true, by the way, it's, um, it's very remote there. And of course, you know, her, her boyfriend is on the front lines in New York city and, um, you know, to get sporadic communication from him about what he is experiencing and the, the, uh, the, the difference between what she is seeing on a daily basis versus what he is seeing on a daily basis is, um, it's really dynamic. For sure. Especially because like she can sometimes get his messages, but she has to like use snail mail to try and get messages to him, but she can't find stamp. Like it's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's catapulted out of her comfort zone, but like many of us, you know, we, uh, we all were catapulted out of our comfort zone in 2020. And um, I think that that for me was the really interesting starting point, what happens when your life is completely upended by the universe. Yeah, I will say that the author's note at the end, um, which I was happy to see in advanced copies, because that doesn't always happen. But you provide a lot of context for the book, and how it came to be. And sort of in particular, you were kind of upfront about the fact that writing was hard at the start of the pandemic for you, which I appreciate hearing. (laughs) Like, Everything oh, was oh hard even Jody is struggling yeah. with like her job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I, I went into lockdown in March, that same week of March, and I have asthma and I was really scared. Um, I didn't leave my house for 15 months until I was fully vaccinated. And my husband was the one who got us groceries and, you know, did everything I needed to do outside the house. And it was, um, it was really weird. It, it really made me feel completely imbalanced. I didn't know who I was, what I was doing anymore. And I actually had been contracted to write a book that is coming out in 2022 that I was co-writing with Jenny Boylan. 
And she called me up in March and she said, hey, my schedule just cleared. How about you? And we sat down to work on this manuscript together. And that was really hard because at that point I couldn't read anything, much less write anything. And I really went through um, that kind of fake it till you make it mentality. You know, I was doing research on Zoom and I was writing because I know I knew what that felt like. And eventually it sprung me back into creativity. Like I was glad to be able to do that. And we wrote a terrific first draft of a book that I can't wait to share with all of you in 2022. But then it got to be November and here we were still no vaccine, still no change. And I was still really overwhelmed. And I I wanted to write about the pandemic. I wanted to figure out how artists were going to tell that story, but I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then I read an article about a man from Japan who went to visit Machu Picchu um, before the pandemic started and the country closed down. And instead of going home to Japan, he stayed. And he didn't just stay for like a week. He stayed for months. He became part of the community. He taught kids martial arts. And eventually the community petitioned the government to have him get to see the historic site he'd come there for. And so he did. Um, and I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. You know, that's something I can work with here. And I'd never been to Machu Picchu and I sure wasn't going in 2020. So I, I thought, well, where, where have I been? What's a bucket list destination? And years ago, I took my kids to the Galapagos and I started to think, okay, what if I set, what if I set my character there for the duration, you know, of the story? And I kind of feel like, that was almost like this divine providence because of course, the minute you introduce the Galapagos into your story, you're talking about Darwin and you're talking about evolution. And you know, the whole theory of natural selection is the concept that when a species is faced with adversity, they have to adapt or they're not gonna make it. And that is in a nutshell, what 2020 was for humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was the perfect complement to the story that I was, I was really trying to tell. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about sort of your research process, specifically with regards to COVID. Um, and, you know, as you said, like the book starts in March, by November, we're still in this place, like as you're writing this book, and then as you're editing it, you know, new information is coming out all the time. Yeah. Did that affect the story in any way? Um, no, it was actually part of the story. And you see it actually in, uh, in Finn's responses, uh, you know, to Diana, Finn is the boyfriend who's on the front lines as a first responder. Um, You see how one day they're giving this drug and the next day they're not. And another day someone says, hey, some doctor flipped patients onto their bellies. We're going to try that today. And that literally was what it was like for the medical community. They really, they were just shooting shots in the dark and hoping something hit a target. Um, you know, and, and to some extent, I would argue we are still in those stages. Mm-hmm. We know a lot more about COVID now, but we sure don't know everything. Right. And, you know, 25 years from now, I think it'll be really interesting to look back and, and see what we didn't know at, at the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like uh, the, the things that were changing it wasn't hard for me to incorporate them because I knew that my book was going to have a very finite timeline. It's set between March and the beginning of May of 2020. And I did that really intentionally because um, once George Floyd was murdered, I think things changed uh, on a very societal level during the pandemic. And that didn't deserve to just be a footnote in my story. That is a whole other story for other people Mm. to tell. Um, So I needed my book to get out of the way before that. Right. Right. So I was really focusing on those early days, which we do know, and we already have forgotten. 
And that was super important to me. You know, the idea that I could talk about how we used to leave our mail out for 48 hours so it wouldn't contaminate us, how we would bring our broccoli home and wash it with soap and water from the grocery store. We have forgotten all those things already, but we all did them. Yeah, no, I definitely had that experience reading it. I, there's a scene, I think, where Finn gets takeout and it's like wiping down the containers. And I'm like, oh, oh we right. did do that. We did do oh, that, right. didn't we? Yeah, I know, right? It's just wild. But it is kind of wild that, yeah, like you you sort of, it's been, we we have adapted to some degree to this and you do have forgotten. I forgot a lot of what it was like in the beginning. And so- it was as a reader sort of like, oh yeah, that, that was a thing that we yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, like part of the whole point of this book is for us to be able to have the perspective to look back. And we do have that now in a way that we didn't in 2020. Um, I always tend to think of it as armor. We were in a mm. war buck naked in 2020. And now yeah. because of science, because of vaccines, we have a fighting chance. And it certainly has changed my life. It allowed me to, to take this book and go on a tour, like in person again with it, which is thrilling, um, you know, but it, it's important for us, I think, to think about everything that we, we learned in the past, you know, 18 months. What do we know about ourselves that we never bothered to take a look at before? Because we didn't have the time or the inclination. And where do we go with that knowledge now that we're moving into a stage where we will be living with this probably for the rest of our lives? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we move forward as a society, as humans? How do we take mitigated risks and still live a life instead of hiding under the covers? Um, you know, the world has changed indefinitely. It's it's going to be it's never going back to the way it was. But we've also changed, and I'd like to think that that means we're better equipped to move forward from this point on. Sure. So you mentioned that you yourself have been to the Galapagos. I'm wondering if any of the experiences that um, Diana has are things that you've done, like some of the sightseeing things. Yeah, there's one thing she does that I wrote in there that um, was the coolest experience I ever had in the Galapagos. We were we were not on an island like she is. She's on Isabella Island and we were actually on a, a Nat Geo ship. So we kind of island hopped when we went. But one day we went out in a Zodiac and we went snorkeling with a bunch of sea lions. And, you know, the thing about the Galapagos that I will never forget is that there are always more fauna than there are humans. And so they're not afraid of humans. And, you know, like there's one island, I don't remember where it is, where it's like, you literally can't walk because you're stepping on iguanas, you know, and they are not moving out of the way. They're like, whatever, it's your problem, you know? And so for me, when we went snorkeling with these, these sea lions, we were in Paris and I was with my son, Jake and. I remember, you know, I had my mask on and my snorkel and, um, the, uh, basically the, the sea lion came up to me. It was like, it looked like a dog. I mean, they are the dogs of the sea and and I got really, really close and he boot me with his nose on right on my mask, you know, like just to tap it with his nose. And I was like, I jumped back a little bit and, uh, and was watching him. And then I, my son did a somersault in the water. And the sea lion watched him and did a somersault in the water. It was awesome. (laughs) It was so fun, you know? And I just was like, God, that, it it was like this amazing moment of connection with an animal, a wild animal that you don't usually get. So I wrote that into Diana's life. Yeah, that was a fun scene to read. I was like, oh, yeah. So, okay, now I'm going to try and ask this next question without spoiling anything. Um, (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) 
Um, so you said you knew you were working within a finite timeline of the book. Um, I guess just to say, when you set out to write the book, did you know sort of where it was going to go and what was going to happen at the beginning? Or did that kind of come along as you were writing? So there is a massive twist in this book. I think we can say <laughs> Um, I will add that I, I have been known, I think, as someone who puts a lot yeah, of, I, I actually so. think this is probably like the best one I've ever written. So I'm very excited about that. But um, I, I knew what that was. Okay. Um, what I, and I knew what I was writing toward. What I did not know and what was unique for me was where I was going after that. Mm. Uh, usually I'm a plotter. I have everything organized. And this book happened so fast for me. I started it in November of 2020 and I finished at the end of January. Oh, wow. And I know. And, uh, you know, and it was just, it came pouring out. Like it was, for me, it was therapeutic. It was my way of finding meaning, you know, of the pa- for the past year. And I was, I was not writing it to publish it. I was writing it because I needed to answer these questions myself. And um, writing is what I know how to do. And I gave it to a couple of friends to read and they were like, um, wow, this feels like the hug that I couldn't get in 2020. And I started to think, wow, maybe it's like not just therapy for me, maybe it's for other people. Yeah. And so I sent it as an attachment to my editor on an email that said, surprise, because she was <laughs> expecting it. And you know, she, she really loved it and said, I really think we do need to publish this and we need to publish it now. And for me, when I was writing it, because it was coming so fast, I didn't, I didn't necessarily know the story that I was telling because I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about it as a publication. It was when I was writing it that I would be like, oh, this is a thread. I, I remember this. This has to go back to the beginning. And I was constantly going back to rewrite sections to add them in as I began to realize what would be important in the, the second half of the book. And I know that, again, you mentioned this in the, the author's note with regard to the twist that you spoke to people. Um, and it sounds like for this book in particular, between doctors and sort of yeah. regular people, you, you did a lot of talking with other people who've experienced these things. Like, what was that like hearing these real stories from people who have survived COVID and, and come out on the other side? And Yeah. It was really different. I spoke to both survivors and I spoke to um, doctors and the thing they had in common was they, they all wanted their story told so badly because I think that um, I, I just feel like for two different reasons, they felt like they had not been able to share what they'd seen with their own eyes. So for doctors, it was because, you know, they were, here are people who take an oath to help other people and all of a sudden you are a surgical resident and there are no elective surgeries. So you're not getting the training you're supposed to get. You are only seeing people in COVID wards. Everybody is getting ventilated and you are losing 18 to 20 patients are dying on your service, which is Mm -hmm. not normal. You know, so that's demoralizing to begin with. And then you leave a 48 hour shift and you walk outside and your barista says to you, ah, COVID, you know, it's a hoax. It's all fake media. And you, you hear your president say, just drink bleach. You're going to be fine. And now imagine what that does to you as a physician. Imagine that, that cognitive dissonance. Um, and I could hear the pain in the voices of the people I interviewed. Many of them cried when they were doing an interview with me. I mean, it was heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. Um, 
And they really wanted, they really wanted people, readers to know what, what they felt and what it was like. The people who survived COVID had very, very bad bouts of it. In many cases were ventilated and they wanted people to know, yes, it's real. Yes, it's terrible. Yes, I survived it because we only, we all heard if you were on a ventilator, you're gone. Yeah. Um, And I am still feeling the after effects. These were people who had it like in March and I was doing an interview in November and they were still suffering the after effects, which again is why it's really important to remind people there's a reason to get vaccinated, even if you had COVID and it's so that you don't wind up with long COVID symptoms. For sure. Yeah. It sounds like you had a big, like when you put the call out, I'm assuming you had a lot of responses from people wanting to, to be interviewed. I did. And I was really picky about who I interviewed <laughs> because like, I wanted a very specific circumstance. Yeah. I knew I was writing this fast. And, you know, I basically spent two full weeks, eight hours a day doing interviews, um, you know, one hour for each person. And uh, yeah, and they were all, they were all very different. And yet they all had something in common, uh, which was very surprising to me and which played a big part in the books, which I won't talk about. Right. Right. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> so um you mentioned this a little bit um, at the beginning, but there is an element of this book that deals with art. And yeah. in particular, you know, there's a painting that is meant to be auctioned off at Sotheby's yeah. by an owner who feels a little bit like Yoko Ono, but isn't Yoko yeah. Ono. <laughs> yeah. yep. And many of the characters in the book are pursuing arts, whether it's painting or photography, there's a lot of art and it's very meta in that this feels like a book where, you know, art is helping us process a lot of that. So I'm assuming that was somewhat intentional, but, um, you know, can you maybe talk a little bit about having so, so many artists in one book? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, it is meta in that I use this art, this, this writing to help me, to help me heal something when I felt broken. And I really do hope that the book brings both comfort and hope to the people who read it. Um, because that's, that's the aim of it. And that that's a way in which art can help you too. Diana is um, very decidedly not an artist, but she comes from a family. (laughs) Her mother is kind of like the female Ansel Adams, who has made a name for herself winning photography Pulitzer prizes by going to like war zones and uh, natural disasters and like, you know, photographing the damages and the effect on people. And was not there very much when she was growing up. And because of that, Diana has a very complicated and difficult relationship with her mom, who now has early onset Alzheimer's. Her dad, who is deceased, um, she was very close to. And her dad was not an artist. He was um, a curator. So his job was to restore someone else's art. He didn't create it on his own. And the very first scene of the book talks about him restoring the ceiling at Grand Central Terminal, which of course is a mistake. When it was first painted, it was painted in reverse. And when they, the conservators came in, they, they replicated the mistake again, which I think is hysterical. But you know, I, I love that idea that art falls in many different ways. Um, not only is it for the actual artist, but then there are the people who, you know, um, who make sure that the art is preserved. And then there are people like Diana who makes the decision to broker art through Sotheby's because she doesn't want to be a creator. Although she had, she was a creator as a kid. She just made this decision to not be like her mom. Yeah. And in the course of the book, she begins to see art in a different way and art as being a way to heal um, completely differently than the way I've already talked about it as well, but in a more art therapy kind of way. The reason that I had Diana working in Sotheby's in the imp mod section, which is impressionist and modern art is because I was thinking a lot about how 
if you went to go see an impressionist painting, if you're standing at the Met or the Musée d'Orsay and you were six inches away from a canvas, what it looks like is a bunch of really pretty blobs. If you move back a couple of feet, and this is actually a scene in the book, what you see is a cathedral or water lilies or, you know, anything, um, it, something that, the, a haystack, things that, that you didn't see at first when you were too close because you didn't have that perspective. And in many ways, that's what art, I think, does during a crisis for us. That's what I want this book to do. I think we have the perspective now to look back on 2020 and to analyze everything we learned about ourselves and decide how we're going to carry that forward. You know, so I think we learned, first of all, that um, it's okay to grieve. Mm -hmm. Everybody lost something in 2020. You give me your age and I'll tell you what you lost. You know, (laughs) in-person schooling, there were weddings, there were um, uh, graduations, there were, uh, in my case, an off-Broadway show that never launched Mm -hmm. because Broadway closed down. Um, there, you know, or the ultimate loss, which is the loss of a person. Everyone lost something. And we all like to play the, oh, well, my, my grief is worse than your grief. But the truth is that none of that really matters. What matters is acknowledging that something's missing. Something was missing in our lives. That's the first thing that I think we learned. The second thing that I think we learned, all of us collectively, is that success is not what we thought it was. If you had asked me in 2019 what was a measure of success, I would have said, It was, um, uh, you know, a degree, a promotion, um, a graduation, a slot on a bestseller list, something like that. If you asked me after 2020, I would say we measured success by things like, am I healthy? Are my kids healthy? Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have enough to eat? Uh, Can I hold the hand of someone I love who's dying? Which we did not know was a privilege until 2020. And suddenly I think, We are taking the wins in very small ways. And I hope as we begin to move forward, as the world speeds up again, we remember that, you know, and we we retain that even as we begin to engage more socially and go back to work and do all those things. So this is my last question. I I think you somewhat answered this, but what do you hope readers take away from reading Wish You Were Here? It's all of that. It's that, you know, that the world has changed. But so have we. And that is a very good place to be. You know, we have evolved and we have learned something. We just have to be very um, uh, conscious of the fact that we don't forget everything we've learned about ourselves when the universe press pause. Great. Jody, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grunenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.